Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 18th, 2016, and my guest is William Davies. He is a senior lecturer at Goldsmiths, University of London, and co-director of the Political Economy Research Center there. His latest book is The Limits of Neoliberalism, Authority, Sovereignty, and the Logic of Competition. And I want to thank listener Darren Gordon for suggesting this guest. Will, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much. Let's start off by defining neoliberalism. What does that mean? Neoliberalism is a term that attracts quite a lot of controversy because some people think it's a a term of abuse used by people on the left to attack those that they disagree with and they sort of – as if it's used just to dismiss capitalism or free markets or whatever it might be. But I try and use it in quite a specific way and my – uh, understanding of neoliberalism and the definition of neoliberalism that I provide in the book is that it's an attempt to remake political institutions and political institutions around particular ideals and norms and uh, ethics that are associated with the market. So, for example, um, the idea of democracy, uh, which is clearly a, a key political ideal for many um, uh, societies, um, is reimagined by neoliberals as a form of marketplace w- in which people can exercise preferences just like consumers and that voting becomes viewed as no different really from going to the supermarket and uh, selecting a, a, a product or a brand. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that the neoliberal era, and before the, the neoliberal era, which really began in the late 1970s, before then, in the thought of neoliberal intellectuals in Germany, Austria, the United States, that there was, that there was a, a deliberate project of trying to strip political institutions and states of their political logic and to try and instate a, an economic logic, to, to apply an economic calculus to, to political institutions, to treat bureaucrats uh, as economic agents or treat politicians as economic agents um, and effectively try and strip the political realm of human life of its distinctive qualities. Yeah, that's an issue that comes up a lot on the program um, and I'm in that group. Uh, that I'm neoliberal certainly in that sense that I often on this program talk about uh, my disenchantment with politics, which is a phrase you use in a similar way. So what's wrong with that? You know, the, the defense of that view is that, well, we're just uh, we're just scientists. We're just looking at politics from a, in a dispassionate way, and it's full of people making decisions subject to their own self-interest, like anywhere else. It's what's called, uh, as you note in your book, the public choice uh, school of of economic political of political economy. The an, the analysis of politics using the tools of economics. What's wrong with that, or what's the alternative that that might be better or more productive? So you pick up on a phrase that I do use, which is the uh, what I call the disenchantment of politics by economics, which is actually a, a, a kind of a nod towards the German sociologist Max Weber, who spoke of modern science and modern rationality as, as leading to the disenchantment of the world. It's a very famous phrase that that that, that Weber uses, and. Just as for Weber, I use this term in a slightly mournful sense that under the attack of neoliberal critique and reforms and thinking, that politics has become viewed in an increasingly cynical way, uh, that it's seen as a space purely of calculation, of self-interest, of uh, of a kind of utilitarian logic. And this is partly, a, I suppose, you know, why would one mourn a different form of politics? Well, one reason is that politics can be a space in which people achieve a kind of fulfillment that is greater than they're capable of just through their 
business relations or their consumer relations and so on. And, and in a way, this is an argument that goes the whole way back to Aristotle in the, the ancient times. And for, for Aristotle, human beings are what he called zoon politikon, that they, they are political animals. They have, a, they have an innate need and tendency to debate questions of justice, of the common good, and to do so publicly. And that this is the, the, the essence of politics. And that in a way, neoliberalism, because it fears politics, it, it views politics as at the root of, of, of totalitarian movements, really, um, wants to strip politics of that kind of romanticism. Now, I completely understand the the risk of a, of a romanticized vision of politics, and uh, it, it's a romanticized vision of politics that is present in, in, in extreme political movements and so on. But at the same time, it leads to, a, I would argue, an emptying of public life and an emptying of, 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 of social life if it's reconceived and modeled purely in economic terms. But there's a more specific, and I, I would say a more tangible reason why there's a problem here, which is, as any sensible political economist understands even the most libertarian economic system the most pro-market economic system is dependent on institutional preconditions and context so i'm talking about regulations property rights money uh rules of what you can and can't do or uh, one of the things i talk about a lot in the book is uh, antitrust law but even if you are the most fervent free market uh, believer, you still recognize, and okay, there might be one or two exceptions on the absolute <laughs> extremes of libertarian thought, right. but if anyone who within the neoliberal movements of, of, of the Austrian uh, and, and Chicago school neoliberals would recognize that there's still a need for the rules uh, of, uh, and a state in order to make this system work. And one of the things that, that I stress in the book is that one of the differences between the neoliberals intellectuals of the of the 20th century and the classical liberals who are, within whom I would include people like Adam Smith the uh, English really the founder of economics in the late 18th century is that the new liberals were actually more attuned to the need for these rules and these state interventions than than the original classical liberals. So actually neoliberals have always been quite concerned with what is the role of the state? What do we need the state to do? What, what kind of law do we need in order for a, a free market society to work? But one of the problems is that if you're going to have laws and rights and these sorts of institutions, you, you need to recognize them for what they are, which is that they are institutions which need, in order to work, they have to carry authority. And authority is a political concept. Uh, norms is a, is, is a social concept. The idea that there is a right and a wrong way to behave is something uh, which everybody, right back to Adam Smith, has realized that you don't get a, a functioning market if people don't have a, a sense of, of right and wrong. You can't just have a, you can't have sort of complete anarchists and nihilists in order for market society to work. It might be that there are certain institutions in the financial sector that, <laughs> that give some space to those sorts of ethical orientations. But ultimately, a successful free market society is one that is founded in institutions, rules, norms, uh, and, and legal systems. And one of the contradictions of neoliberalism, and one of the ways I would argue that it's run into its limits uh, over the last decade, is that it's it doesn't offer a basis with which to think about things like law and regulation and authority because it only offers more and more economic uh, calculations and, and economic ways of thinking. So ultimately, it loses, it loses the capacity to think what is a, a legitimate state or a legitimate regulation. Uh, all it can do is, is, is apply economics uh, into more and more corners of social and public life. So I should mention uh, to listeners that that Will is a sociologist, which is uh, a lot of fun. I, I, one of the things I enjoyed greatly about the book is I felt a little bit like a animal at the zoo uh, <laughs> as an economist. He, he, it's really almost an anthropological study of how economists think and their influence. But I, I want to challenge the effectiveness of this transformation that you mentioned, this disenchantment w of, with politics. So I, I agree that certainly for myself, and, and I would put myself in the camp that you describe uh, – I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. I'm certainly aware of the importance of institutions and and the role of the state in allowing uh, economic choices to be made and, and not just economic choices but what might be called civil society, the voluntary ways that we come together um, to help other people or to achieve certain goals either in commercial life or in our, in our social spheres. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, to that worldview – but I, I wonder how effective we've been in disenchanting politics. So I, I agree that in the academic world, 
there is a large group of economists and and maybe others who wonder about the efficacy of of the state as a source of of meaning as a sort the political sphere as a source of meaning but i would say in the body politic in in the masses in the average citizen it's pretty alive and well we're seeing that right now in the we're in the uh, winter of 2016 in the run up to the next us presidential election and we see a lot of i see a lot of romance on both the republican and democratic side without going into specifics but I see a lot of people who have a desire to express themselves politically who, who are not cynical at all about the enterprise and, and are very, very romantic about it. Do, do you agree with that? I suppose that's right. And I mean, I, I, maybe I, I'm partly um, I'm not being a, a U.S. resident or citizen. Um, that what I would describe as, as, as that, 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 that's a kind of famous feature of, of, of United States um, democracy and civil society, right back to the work of Alexis de Tocqueville in the early 19th century, where he visited America from France and discovered this amazing passion that people had for for the kind of for the for the public sphere and for yeah, I mean, things like talk radio, whatever it might be. Um, and um, uh, that's something which I suppose we don't have in the same way in my own country in Britain. I suppose. Um, in a way, my book is less about democracy and those spaces of, of, of citizenship, which I think you're right. Clearly, that's a lot of that going on. Although I think there's also some fairly convincing analysis, although it may be more European. But there's a there's a book called uh, Ruling the Void by a, a, a British political scientist called Peter Mayer that came out a couple of years ago about the demise of um, political participation, the demise of political parties. In the 1950s, Britain's Conservative Party had a membership of over 2 million people, and now I think it's uh, well under 100,000. Um, I mean, so that type of political participation has, has disappeared, as, as, as it has on the left as well, with the with demise of, of trade unions. Uh, and instead, there is a shift towards a more of a, of a, of a televisual form of politics where effectively um, you know a lot of the a lot of the techniques that were important to politics came from the business world I mean um, Bill Clinton was uh, and, and Tony Blair in, in Britain were was were, were were well known for having been masters of using focus groups and branding exercises and so on so that effectively the political party becomes like a or the, the, the political project becomes seen as a sort of product that's being sold so I mean there's that but I don't I don't it's impossible to disagree with what you're saying about the passion that's currently being exercised around um, something like the American presidential election but I think most of my analysis is more and I, I wouldn't want to romanticize the state I think that's that's clearly a, a dangerous thing to do but I think that there is a sense that um, you know the 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 state itself becomes viewed as as via a mainly economic lens and in some ways the the fact that you know the the difficulty of developing a, a critique of of lobbying or a limit to lobbying power uh, or in the United States to uh, campaign finance and so on is in some ways uh, a, a manifestation of some of the problems that I'm trying to describe where the way in which, say, a corporation behaves economically is seen as just a kind of, you know, a different variant of, of the way that it can behave politically um, and that actually, you know, using, if you've got billions of dollars to spend, um, then your right to spend them in, in, in the political arena is no different from your right to spend them in the economic arena because ultimately they're viewed as the same thing. This is the logic, this effectively the colonization of, of the political sphere by an economic logic that I'm, that I'm describing, I think is also uh, part of the problem of something like the, the power of lobbying, in, which is more of a problem in the United States, I think, than it is in, in Europe. Yeah, let's, let's turn to the role of competition, which is a, a big chunk of the book, which fascinates me. Um, because I have a little bit of a, a love-hate relationship with it, a little more hate than I used to have, mostly love still, but a little bit of, of unease. Uh, what role does competition play in the neoliberal vision? Well, this is really where I got interested in all of this in the first place, because I worked in the policy world um, in Britain. I worked in think tanks in the early 2000s, and I became very interested in, in the rhetoric of national competitiveness. This is how I became interested in all of this, was people would talk about we need to make Britain more competitive or London more competitive and so on. And I became interested in at least the, the rhetoric that surrounds competitiveness. So I started thinking, kind of why, why would we deem 
competitiveness to be something that we want more and more and more of. Now, there are various answers you might you might say, well, it's it's natural, you know, it's hardwired into us because of Dar- this is what Darwin argues, or or you might say uh, that it's that it's uh, exciting or, or whatever. Like the same reason we like competitiveness in sport. Um, but I began to look at some of the ways in which neoliberal thinkers back to the 1930s had described and and valued competition as a, as a not just something which is present in markets but actually as a as a as a principle that is crucial to uh, human progress and human freedom which is how they viewed it and i think the in some ways the the simplest defense of competition it's not just a defense of competition it's actually a um a a, 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 a prioritization of competition as 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 the ultimate basis for a liberal society to be organized around comes from the work of the Austrian economist and philosopher Friedrich Hayek. And he, he described competition as a discovery process. Um, he argued that via institutions which are competitive, and, and he meant mainly markets, but I don't think it's only markets. I think you could say that right. something like academic publishing is, is, would be an example of this as well or something, or, um, or you could say that uh, internet dating or whatever it might be, um, but that your culture, as you say, and, and is that um, it be, through, through, through eliminating that which is of less value or less truth or less beauty, uh, you've hit on that which is of more value or truth or beauty. And this is also what someone like Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, argued really with his vision of the open society was that you need to have the chance of something being eliminated in order for it, in order for it to be valued. Um, and you see that today in Britain, um, you know, the, in my own sector, in the university sector, the government is trying to introduce more markets into higher education, but they don't really introduce a price mechanism. They're not really making it a, a, a market in the, in the sense of kind of a commodities market. What they're doing is making it competitive. So they're trying to reach a situation where bad universities stop you know, basically go bust um, or, or, or have to get gobbled up by another one or something like that. So they're, they're looking to processes of competition in order to govern universities differently, to uh, discipline them, to try and get people to change their behavior in certain ways so that they behave in a more enterprising way. Uh, and that would be an example of the way in which comp- competition is, is mobilized within a neoliberal political system because firstly if you take that example of something like the way in which universities are governed in, in Britain uh, it's something being pushed very much by the state it's not a sort of natural competition that that emerges kind of in the way that you might see in a nature documentary or something uh, and it's also not a natural competition of the sort that Adam Smith was interested in in the late 18th century where he thought that um, capitalism involves people begin to naturally compete against each other and, and that has certain kinds of efficiencies. Competition is, is something which is actively inculcated in a neoliberal political system uh, as a deliberate way of trying to achieve some kind of progress and, and but also to impose some kind of discipline. Um, one of the curious things to me, looking at the way in which different neoliberal intellectuals and policymakers have tried to do this is that often they become more interested in pushing competition into areas outside of the market than to ensuring that it exists inside the market. Yeah. So if you look at the Chicago School influence on antitrust from the 1970s up until the, well, ongoing really, um, it became, antitrust authorities became far more sympathetic towards corporations than, uh, than was previously the case. So by some standards, uh, United States uh, competition authorities were more um, provided more of a defense uh, of competition in the sense of uh, achieving some kind of pluralism in the market than they do nowadays. And yet you would you would assume that we're we now live in a more pro market era than was the case under the um, during the Keynesian era of the 1950s and 60s, yet uh, competition enforcement has become more pro-monopoly over that period. Now, that introduces interesting questions to me about what exactly is meant by competition and competitiveness. Yeah, I'm going to come back to the antitrust thing, but I want to react to and get you to expand on this just general set of remarks about competition. Uh, we've talked on this program before about what I call a pseudo-market, you know, the introduce, introduction of certain features of markets – Without the rest of the features that are that emerge organically in a in a real market, so your your education example is a perfect example. And you know Milton Friedman proposed in Capitalism and Friedman in the early 1960s, and it, I think there are others who had proposed it around that time as well. That 
that by introducing vouchers uh, into public schools, we'd have competition. Uh, well, we would. We'd have more competition. Whether that would be good or bad, I'm, my first thought is probably good, certainly probably better than what we have. But it wouldn't be a market system of education. It, it would have some of the features of a market system. But I think there's a, a psychological, philosophical romanticization of markets that you uh, sensitize the reader to that those features not, are not really necessarily going to lead to the outcomes that, that occur in more organically emergent markets. Uh, and yet we sort of bring all the romance that you have about those markets along with them, even though there may not be they may not be present. The, the other factor is the the role that competition plays in, in everyday life and in our culture that perhaps comes from this neoliberal economist vision of the virtues of competition. Uh, and then there's the pushback against it. So I, I see in today's world, in, in many ways, there's a fight between those of us who are eager to see competition work its magic, say, in the real marketplace, versus those who think, nah, I don't like a lot of the aspects of that. So we want to have everybody get a trophy in sports wor- in the sports world. We want to have a social um, role for business, the social responsibility movement. We don't want it to be a dog-eat-dog world where uh, businesses can can creatively destroy others, the Schumpeterian ideal. That's too harsh on the members of those corporations and businesses. So I see, I see there's a strife between those two cultural uh, trends. So I wonder if you could comment on that and see if, and if you agree with me about the educational part. Well, I, absolutely. I agree that there's a, this distinction between a, a, a market and something which is, becomes a pseudo-market, I think is an important one, uh, that distinction you're drawing. And, and to me, the key issue is whether there's a, a price mechanism. Is, is there going to be some price for the good that is going to rise and fall vaguely in response to supply and changes in supply and demand? And um, this is clearly something that... Um, uh, this distinction is quite important and people go around, again, in, in Britain, which has had historically a larger state involved, a larger public sector than in uh, most of the United States, and there's been various trends towards forms of privatization over the last 30 years, and many of them don't actually involve a sell-off. They don't actually involve taking goods that were previously publicly owned and, and making them privately owned where they're in the market, often they involve a, a, some type of managerial reform to try and inject a market ethos or a competitive ethos. So that's, that's an important point. On the cultural point, I think um, this is interesting. And I think, I think it's um, become, there's a kind of feedback that goes on between the ways in which our economy becomes reformed and governed so as to create um, a Greater and greater, um, a greater and greater role for competition, um, uh, trying to inculcate that spirit of, of creative destruction. And you probably, there's probably nowhere in the world that, that um, has places greater emphasis on this than somewhere like Silicon Valley, which is sort of uh, an ethos of, of that both celebrates huge entrepreneurial success, but also widespread entrepreneurial failure. I mean, this is, and in a way, this is something which I don't know, again, in, in, in my own national context, I think there are very few people who could actually cope with that level of, 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 of sort of disruption, really, because I think people, the, 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 the need for widespread failure in, in a system like that, I think, places huge strains on a society. And that's not to, to say that the successes of Google, Facebook and Uber, or whatever, are not sensational and, uh, and, and kind of quite awe-inspiring in a way. But the, 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 the need to also have a large amount of the population that is willing to uh, repeatedly put up with failure, um, partly because they still are dreaming of success in the future, is something that not many cultures can sustain. Um, and I think that partly is how the... I mean, there's no coincidence that a lot of Austrian economics is so celebrated in um, the United States. I think the Ludwig um, von Mises Institute, the famous Austrian economist, I think is in Alabama or somewhere. I think, you know, there's a, um, so there's a, there's a, there's a sort of um, quite a, a neat cultural fit between the Austrian emphasis on the entrepreneur, which I think stems from some quite conservative visions of, 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 of heroic and quite 
macho individualism uh, that some people have even linked back to the work of Friedrich Nietzsche in the in the late nineteenth century. Say it isn't so. But you know the the, 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 the ability to, to to remake a society around that is, is quite is quite difficult, um, and I'm sure that our current government in Britain would 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 rather like the idea that we'd have more people with that kind of mindset, and they now areas of the of, of our welfare state reform, which you know the fact that we even have as much of a welfare state as we do would probably be seen as shocking to to many people, particularly of a conservative persuasion in the United States. But as it's being reformed at the moment. There is the introduction of various sort of positive thinking, uh, uh, behavioural modification techniques, which in some ways are sort of the worst of all worlds because it's kind of big state, but it's also very pro. Um, it's also kind of a sort of enforced competitiveness, really, uh, where they people have to recite positive thinking um, slogans about every time I get down, fall down, I will get up again, and I'm the only person that can do it. And in a way, it's a sort of an Austrian neoliberal ethos being converted into a into an attempt to try and sort of get people sort of out of the house in the morning and looking for a job rather than living off benefits. So um, I, I think it's difficult to just manufacture that kind of culture. But on the other hand, I think it's interesting how our mass media has become more and more interested in, in competition. I think one of the most interesting cultural phenomena of the last 15, 20 years is the rise of reality television and talent shows, which are just huge, certainly in Britain. But this, you know, this, this in a way, what the talent shows do... Um, we have Britain's Got Talent or, you know, these sort of singing shows and so on and dancing and cooking and everything, is they take that, what I said earlier about Hayek calling competition a discovery process, is that they turn that into a spectacle in its own right. So it's taking the question of singing, which ultimately singing has intrinsic value. It's a nice thing to do. It's a nice thing to listen to. It doesn't, you, you know, it's, it should be possible to sing in an enjoyable way or to listen to a singer without someone else being deemed a worse singer. But in a way that that's the, in a way this, this, this obsession with, with, with elimination of the unworthy has become a cultural maxim that, that we almost are addicted to now, I would that, say. And, and it's the, sort of... Well, there's, there's the flip side of it, which is the I think part of the appeal of those shows, uh, and I watch them now and then on YouTube, I watch highlights. I've hardly seen uh, an hour of Britain's Got Talent. So not, not a lot, but, but the pieces, <laughs> but I've watched some. And, it, and, what, and I'm not a TV watcher generally, but what I'm watching, the reason I find it uh, emotionally uplifting and powerful is the underdog. And I think they know that really well and they sell that relentlessly. So you... You bring uh, a person who's um, working in a fish and chips shop or uh, driving a lorry, as as you say there, and this person's undiscovered and usually has some traumatic family life on top of it. And that, you know, a surviving parent is there in the audience in the wings watching, sobbing as the as the is this person of unknown ability suddenly is 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 the winner and i think it taps into a deep human uh need there and it's just interesting to me. i never thought about how it how that uh interacts with the competitive aspect of it, it obviously an underdog is by definition related to the competitiveness of it but there's something about the victory there that is particularly satisfying because it's somebody we didn't expect but you're focusing on you're, it's interesting you're focusing on a minority of the contestants there now Absolutely. you could say well of course I am <laughs> I mean I, I'm interested in I'm interested in quality I'm interested in in success but I think if you were to view that same you, you're you're interested in who, who wins but, I'm cherry picking um, I'm cherry picking from you know I mean and, and and that's the that's the logic of the show but this means in order for that person to have that experience you've got to have another I don't know 99 who have to have a devastating experience and and sometimes that devastation is is also in terms to the spectacle. I mean, they, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the tears and the hugs and the yep. and the person walking off and so on. Um, and of course, you could say from a, a kind of cultural studies perspective, from if you were doing a, a cultural analysis of these shows, you'd say that we can. I mean, in a way, we we relate to both sides. We relate to the winner in our in our dreams, but a lot of the time, we do put up with situations where we are the the person, or at least we worry about being eliminated. You know, we worry about losing our jobs, or we worry about not being the winner, and so on. And and in a way, it sort of it strikes me that if you were designing a society from scratch, if you were to think purely in terms of how can this be done to best 
identify the winner or the best or the the most glorious, that would be a, a very strange um, principle on which to organize any society because effectively what you're doing is consigning the majority of people to the status of losers. And in a way, this seems to run counter to the ethos of democracy, really. Um, but, but it also runs counter to the neoliberal version of competition in, e in economics, which is – I think it's important because I think it's forgotten a lot. You know, the it's not economics almost by definition, the, at least the Smithian vision of it, which is I think many of us still hold in the modern world, is, is that it's not a zero-sum game. No. And reality TV is a zero-sum game. The Super Bowl yeah. is a zero-sum game. The World Cup – is a zero sum game. There's only one winner, but the ideal of I think the romance that that I have and many have that has some reality to it about economics and economic competition is that the losers get reconstituted as winners. The people mm -hmm. who rise and fall in the economic competition they don't die. The losers don't die. They're not eliminated from the show. They just have to come back and their their firm mm -hmm. dies, and then the people who work there have to go find other jobs. And or their children thrive as a result of the competition. So it's a very yeah. different, I think, view of uh, of that. So I agree with you. That would be a bizarre uh, ethos to bring to to a society. I don't think that's really what we have in the economic sphere. But I suppose it. I mean, this is a, now we're talking about questions of degree because in order for for that um, system that you've described, where people get to come back, you need to have certain forms of social safety net, certain forms of um, public education. You need to have these institutions which produce what is often referred to as a, as a meritocracy, but you also need to have, I mean, I suppose maybe culturally the, the, the persistence of a, of a class system in Britain or a, a class system that is, that is recognized as a class system, unlike the American class system, which is not recognized as a class system. That's right. We don't um, have one. <laughs> no, you don't have one. That's right. Um, but in Britain, we kind of, you know, we, 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 we have one and we admit we have one and we, we, we joke about the fact that we have one. So it's a sort of, it's a class system that, that speaks its name. Um, but I suppose it, 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 that makes it all the more obvious that, um, that, that in a way, some form of meritocracy requires some type of active political intervention in order to um, prevent people being held back by their origins. And that, in a way, is a cultural problem of, of Britain. This is why, in a way, I suppose, Tony Blair's Labour government of 1997 to, to well, he, he stepped down in 2007, was in some ways the, 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 the most was, was in some ways the most effective neoliberal government because it was one which recognized the need for an active state to keep this competitive game constantly ticking over. So there was a lot of efforts to try and get people to be active in the labor market, to not drop out, to, to help people who were, who were disadvantaged to get into the game so that people were constantly being helped back into the game the whole time. Now, again, there's a, there's a history of this in, in certain strange as it may sound, there are some left-wing neoliberal intellectual traditions. They tend to be more in France and Germany, over the um, second half of the 20th century, people like Louis Rougier and some of the ordo-liberal thinkers of Germany for, uh, from the 1930s through to the 1960s. And these were intellectual traditions that placed great emphasis on the need for the state to ensure that everybody could be a competitor. Um, because if you just leave capitalism to itself, then we should be closer to a to a, um, I suppose, a Chicago school uh, tradition of neoliberalism, then you can't guarantee that everyone's going to still be in with a shout. And I think if you look at my, my hunch is today, and this isn't something I say on the basis of, of evidence, but when you look at the rising burden of, of mental health problems and um, the, 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 the problem of depression across the Anglo-American world, and I, I think that in many ways this, this neoliberal vision of a society where everybody can keep having another go is, is losing credibility. I mean, it may have had credibility at certain times in its history, but I'm not sure that unless you've taken the right sorts of um, SSRIs and you've read the right kind of self-help books and you've constantly looking up to the American flag and believing that you can still make it, there's a sort of like requires, it requires growing amounts of work on the part of uh, ordinary people and particularly people with low income who don't own any assets to really see this system as being one that they that they have a chance of succeeding in. Well, I don't know. I, we're in a particularly unpleasant time, I think, for some a significant part of the population. We don't. I don't think we fully understand why that's true. Uh, whether it's a response to the a, re, a 
an effect of the financial crisis, the, the recession, whether it's a reordering of skills in the global marketplace. Uh, you know, I think this will all be a little clearer in the next, I hope, a little clearer in the next 10 years or so. But mm. I, I do have to say that that um, just two things. One, uh, certainly some of the resources that would uh, cushion the blows of creative destruction could come from the private sector, from voluntary mm. action motivated by altruism and compassion, uh, which if they're not there, are not going to be working much through the political process either, I would I would add. Um, but the other point I would make is that the rise of depression, I think, is is and mental illness is somewhat, uh, unfortunately, perhaps a different kind of example of the trends you're talking about, the the empowerment of pharmaceutical corporations through mm. uh, subsidies to health care have made it uh, – you know, dramatically easier for people to have access to things that uh, they're often encouraged to take without spending their own money. Um, the expansion of definitions of certain conditions. I'm, I'm with. Uh, I'm not. I'm not much with uh, Henry David Thoreau, but I do agree that the mass of men lived lives of quiet desperation. And I think that was true a long time ago. I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I think it's part of the human condition. I don't think it's a result of competitive stress. Uh, at least that's my. That's my uh, that's my take. I, I want to move to um, I move to a different aspect of your work, which is which I found extremely interesting, uh, which was a, your emphasis on the Chicago schools championing championing of efficiency as as a goal. Talk about most people, I think, struggle with that term because it has an everyday use that sounds like efficacy, but in economics, it has a more narrow uh, use that is, I think somewhat triumphant alongside quantitative techniques that you also mentioned. So talk about efficiency and uh, the role of the Chicago School in in pushing that forward. Well, the context of this is, is reforms to antitrust law, and the key period is, is, is the 1970s and early 1980s. So it, it, goes, it, goes, it coincides with the, with the conservative... Uh, the rise of of, of Reagan and uh, the conservative counter-revolution of the of the 70s and, and 80s, and the effect of it is, I would argue, and I'm not the only person to say this, um, that the Washington regulators become much more sympathetic towards large corporations, corporations which might have been broken up under during the 1950s, 1960s, such as AT&T and others that were even targeted for a for breakup in, in the early 1980s, uh, become left alone um, as a result of certain reforms to the way in which antitrust is, is conceived. And one of the things I, I explore in the book is how that this is a relatively direct result of certain uh, arguments that are made by Chicago school lawyers and economists uh, from the 1950s onwards, uh, particularly uh, the lawyer Robert Bork, um, the law and economics scholar Richard and judge Richard Posner uh, and others who Aaron Director, basically you say, mentioned as well and be important in that movement, Aaron Director. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the argument that these these figures make is that fundamentally the antitrust authorities do not know what they're doing is that they that they're enforcing the law but they don't really know to what end they're enforcing the law um they seem to be targeting companies purely for being successful this is the 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 the, the one of the abiding hunches and arguments that is made within the Chicago School from the work of people like Director and, and others in the, in the mid-1950s through to, through to books published by Bork and Posner in the 1970s. Um, and the, they argue that the antitrust authorities were simply targeting large companies, whereas they argued that actually companies might be large because they're good. Um, and they were targeting, the antitrust authorities were targeting profitable companies on the assumption that profits were a sign that some kind of anti-competitive behavior was going on. Whereas from a Chicago school perspective, profits might just be a, a sign that you are being managed in an efficient fashion. And one of the um, very, very simple, almost sort of irresistibly simple arguments that was put forward by um, these Chicago school figures was to say that the only basis for a legitimate intervention by the regulator in the market is to increase efficiency. Uh, and what they mean by this is that efficiency is, a, is, a, is an outcome. It's a, something that can be calculated using neoclassical economics. Um, efficiency, I mean, I, I'm not a, enough of an expert on economics uh, or economic philosophy of economics to know exactly how, how it's defined, but effectively... Uh, yeah, go on. So, 
I th- the way I was taught, and I was taught this, uh, as I've mentioned many times on the program, I was taught this relentlessly as a graduate student at Chicago, uh, particularly by uh, Al Harberger uh, and and others, that you want to maximize the net benefits. You mm. want to maximize uh, benefits minus costs. Yeah. And as a result, uh, that's what matters. And and the argument, which you know, it goes back to Vilfredo Pareto, one of the great um, yeah. names of of social science. Can't beat that, Vilfredo Pareto. Uh, but Pareto, you know, had different ways of thinking about social outcomes, and the way it get his ideas became part of economics was, I would say, the following: if a policy produces monetary gains that exceed the losses, then there's a surplus there that can be mm. redistributed to those who are harmed by it so that everyone is at least as well off or better off than they were before. And mm. there's a, it's a beautiful idea. The problem is, is that that, re, that redistribution or compensation rarely takes place, mm. which means that any policy has winners and losers. And so my view as a grown-up rather than as a graduate student, it's become, well, I think growth matters. I think adding to the net size of the pie, which is what efficiency really is about, matters. But we do also care. Both the losers certainly care <laughs> that, that they're mm. hurt. And those of us who are the winners often care about the losers. So just looking at efficiency seems rather bizarre. It's a utilitarian argument. Fundamentally. Yes, it's a utilitarian argument. The, so it's about the it's about the outcome. Yeah, uh, in the European Commission, where they adopted this approach um, in the early two thousands, much later than in than in Washington D.C., they call it the effects based approach. Um, so they they mean it's about assessing whether or not a behavior is 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 legitimate or illegitimate, not by looking at the behavior itself, but by looking at how it effectively how it reshapes the the overall system or what is the outcome what is the what, what have you left at the end of the, of the behavior um so effectively it's it's also it's also quite a an amoral approach uh, not not immoral but it is name it's an amoral approach because it effectively says there's no such thing as as bad behavior there's only bad outcomes so this um means that all, lots of things that the antitrust authorities used to try and punish during the 50s and 60s they used to punish um, firms for doing things purely because they were deemed to be anti-competitive in, in and of themselves. So, you know, if you, were, you weren't allowed to offer, if you were in two different markets, you might be selling lawnmowers in one market, you might be selling tea bags in another market, you weren't allowed to actually offer your two products in your two different markets bundled together as a single deal because that was seen to be a, 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 an abuse of the way in which the market works. And they, there was no interest in whether or not it actually might be best for everyone overall to, you know, as, as you say, in a sort of... Uh, Pareto's way of of looking at things, it was purely punished on the basis that it was a, a, a breach of a particular norm, a norm that was b- believed to be um, crucial to the way in which markets work. So in that sense, the, the Chicago School critique had a, had a, a massively simple, well, on one level it was simplifying because it made it very clear what antitrust interventions were there to do, which is that they were there to make everybody better off overall. On the other hand, it was actually quite complexifying because it meant that the key questions of antitrust authority and, and, and the courts which were overseeing, which were making rulings in this area, came down to often very complicated forms of economic evidence that had to be assembled in order to try and you know, counterfactual. You know, what, what would be the effect of, of this merger not going ahead or this merger going ahead? And you look at two different models of the future and if, the, if there's a price rise for consumers in one, era, in, in, in one model and there's a price fall for consumers in the other model, then the, then the second one is deemed to be preferable. But you've got to understand what the model is and whether the model contains errors and so on. So one of the arguments that I make in the book, one of the things that I, that I explore a bit is that this, this, this shift in towards a more utilitarian outlook um, not only means that there's, there's less of a, of a moral um, uh, approach to the market, there's also uh, a rising authority for um, techniques of economic model building and calculation and so on. And if you take something like the, the financial sector, which is not something I look at, but in a way these problems are even more exacerbated because in a sense the question of how do you – I mean Roosevelt didn't have to come up with a, a, an economic model proving that if you break up investment banking and retail banking, it would make everyone better, better off overall. He was just able to do it. Um, I don't know the whole history of the, the Glass-Steagall Act, but you see the point I'm making. Yep. Whereas nowadays uh, in order to do something like that, 
the banks would assemble huge bodies of evidence and data and models and calculations showing that this was going to be, uh, this was going to have this negative effect on GDP and this negative effect on consumers and this negative effect on um, the economy of New York and London and so on. Um, and you'd be lost in a whole battle about, about uh, utilitarian effects. Uh, and you would have completely lost sight of the question of, of how to structure the economy in the first place. Yeah, I, I saw a conference, uh, was at a conference in the last year where a paper was presented showing that, you know, countries that have large financial sectors do better than countries that don't, which I, right. I find that um, analysis, that kind of analysis deeply disturbing for, for many reasons. But I want to come back to this issue of, of efficiency in general and, and growth, because I think it's, they're really – Talking about it and reading your book forced me to realize there are really two trends in um, in this in this way of thinking. One I consider the Smithian trend, which is we're easily seduced by money and wealth um, and the thrill of competition, and so it's perfectly okay if we fight against that and decide, you know, I'm not going to try to be as rich as possible. I might take some time off and. And volunteer or learn how to play the guitar or whatever it might be. At the same time, there's sort of this trend that says, hey, you're a slacker. You're not carrying your weight. You're not producing, uh, you're not contributing to national competitiveness, a theme mm -hmm. you talk about a lot. And I feel like, you know, in a way, the, the political sphere and plenty of economists as well have taken that really good idea, which is that. Well, you know, how rich you are is, is important. You don't want to starve to death. And mm. people sometimes choose to be wealthy and sometimes less so. And they've taken to say, well, the more the better. And they've taken this human urge that we all have to acquire, which is, I think, part of our nature. We sometimes fight against it. Religion encourages us to fight against it. But we take this, this I think, reality and then we elevate it to a, an ideal, that, well, then the more growth, the better off we are. And that doesn't yeah. follow at all. And I think economists have really let, down, let us down. And I, I'm, I, have to, I want to read a quote from the book, which I think really uh, captures this beautifully. Uh, you say, ironically, where every other actor is considered by Chicago scholars to be driven by rational self-interest, the bureaucrat, the judge, the parent, the trade unionist, the politician – the neoclassical economist is elevated to a quasi-judicial status from where he can evaluate socioeconomic behavior and data in an entirely disinterested manner. And that's a lie. Uh, you're right. Your statement is correct. <laughs> it's a lie that economists are just these disinterested uh, social engineers trying to find out what's best. We are also self-interested and we also have – uh, benefit from certain of our ideas becoming more prominent. I think your book sensitizes the reader to that. Yes, and I, I think this is something which, I mean, again, the financial crisis threw a lot of light and a lot of skepticism upon the, the, the power that, that economists have, Not maybe not power, but the, 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 the influence they have impact. within the financial system and the impact, yes, and the, what some sociologists have called the, uh, I'm going to use one piece of jargon now, but the performativity of um, economics, which basically means that economics isn't just describing the world. In fact, actually, the Chicago School economists never really believed that it described the world very well at all. That wasn't really the point. But that it's, it's, it, it's, it's actually something which you can do things with rather than, uh, rather than it, it being a representation. I mean, Milton Friedman, his famous 1953 uh, methodology essay, the positive the methodology of positive economics, he argued that the truth value of economics was nothing to do with, it, with its description of how things are. It was purely to do with the predictions of, of, of what will happen, which in a sense is in keeping with that, you know, to that, if you take that, that term, the, an effects-based approach that the European Commission does in, in competition policy, that, that, that sort of in a sense sums that up, is that what you're doing is you're coming up with, with tools with which to take decisions, tools with which to make predictions, and tools with which to manage situations and so on. You're not actually trying to come up with a, a plausible description of the world. Um, so in that sense, economists have never been very, um, have never been innocent. Um, I mean, the Chicago school itself, and you would know this much better than me, but I think had an ethos of scientific detachment um, in the sense that a lot of its central figures believed that economics could 
plough on in a in a in a in a very scientific, very objective, very uh, apolitical kind of way. I mean, that wasn't true, obviously, of Milton Friedman, who was a, a much more politically engaged public intellectual. But I think one of the questions that I suppose I would put to the Chicago School, and and I know you've 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 been associated with it, is how plausible is that sense that price theory, as they like to call it, is, is just yet another neutral tool for analyzing the world, when, when quite clearly it's been entangled in all sorts of crises and uh, meltdowns and so on. I mean, anyone who, I don't know if you've seen the film, The um, Inside Job, about the financial crisis. Um, I mean, this, I mean, I'm sure it's a, it's a I'm sure it's not, a, uh, it, it tells one particular version of events, but Economists were not. Economists were were involved in the financial crisis. Let's Absolutely. put it that way. Absolutely. No, there are many of them, and they're not all in that video. There, there are many yeah. of other people who I think bear some responsibility for it. But I actually think I think Milton uh, belongs in that in that camp. I think Milton saw him, even though he was politically active, and you could contrast uh, Friedman and Stigler, who you who you write about as well. Stigler. Stigler felt that the uh, that the world was a circus to be observed and analyzed. At, most sometimes laughed at, particularly the political process, and that it would be a mistake and a, and a delusion to try to influence it because, of course, it is subject to market forces and one's own championing of a particular policy is not going to have any impact if it doesn't pass the, the – isn't uh, in the incentive of the political actors to, to do it. Milton, on the other hand, felt you could influence the political sphere, so he wrote a lot about politics, uh, of course, and public policy. Not politics, public policy. But at the same time, I think he believed, or at least he it was his public persona, that he was also a scientist, that his scientific work was different, that he could, as as one econ talk guest said, he could put on his science hat and then take it off and put on his ideology hat. And right. my claim is that that's a delusion. I don't, I don't mean to be critical of Milton, who I'm a big fan of and incredibly um, important person in my in education and, and in my life. But uh, I think it is – so I don't know where, how aware or unaware he was of it. I don't want to say he was deluded. But I think many economists are deluded into thinking and want to believe that they can wear those two hats separately. Mm. Uh, and it's very self-serving. We, we need to confront the fact that it's very much in our interest to pretend to the world that we have a scientific aspect to our work that is yeah. free of values. And I think that's – I think it's fundamentally uh, deceptive and dishonest. Right. Well, I, I agree with that. And I think in a way that that is why it's important to start reviving some sense of, of political economy in the sense of uh, which uh, someone, someone like Keynes would never have claimed to, 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 to have two different hats in the first place. Um, I mean, he, you know, there was – his theories had to carry enough water for, for, in order to, to pass muster. But I think that the, the politics and the economics was always – um, entangled to, to a greater extent. And I think um, – so I, I agree with everything you've just said. Talk about the nudge industry, which you mentioned, uh, and its mm. influence on public policy and how it, it fits in with some of these uh, themes. Uh, my interest in nudge, and this is something I look at also in my, in my other book, The Happiness Industry, uh, is um, that I suppose – I said my interest in it is the kind of mismatch between – the types of the, the the levels of intervention that are being made and the hopes that are being expressed for it. That the the book Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, uh, and Thaler of course is another Chicago figure, but I suppose not associated with the Chicago School. Not quite um, the same. Yeah. Um, is yeah, I mean this book really kind of took the world by storm in two thousand and eight. Uh, was two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that sort of time. And well, there's been now a nudge institute set up in the British government, and I think Barack Obama recently legislated for to have all federal policies um, evaluated in terms of whether or not they were, uh, you know, whether they 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 abided by certain psychological principles of common sense in some way. I think I can't remember exactly how the how the the, the legislation was was framed, but it's certainly something which is on the rise. And of course, the more we live in what might be called smart environments with smartphones and smart cities and smart 
transport networks and so on, the capacity to um, try and influence our behaviour through changing the kind of cues and information we get is going up all the time. So this is very much an idea of its, of its, of its times. Um, I mean, just to, for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, the, the idea effectively uh, suggests that there's a, there's a role for public authorities not in um, simply providing people with choices or um, reducing their choices or banning their choices, but in altering the way in which choices are presented, what they call choice architectures, uh, so as to try and help people choose things that are going to be better for them in terms of their health or their financial futures or their um, well-being or whatever it might be. Um, and I suppose my interest in it is that in some ways it's not a, a very radical departure from um, from from the from the status quo really um the chicago school had a fairly dogmatic commitment to a vision of rational choice it's there in the work of yep. uh, gary becker and, and ronald coase and, and people like this and um this assumes that people take rational self-interested utility maximizing decisions and that their preferences are uh, exogenous and that they they sort of spring into their minds as if by magic and then people just kind of act on them i mean clearly that has never been a plausible description of in, in the mere existence of advertising means that that description is is clearly not a, a, a plausible description but of course they they never claimed that it was a description they claimed that it was a uh, it was a uh, yeah. sort of principle um so i suppose what nudging is doing is is, is beginning to tweak with that model and and i suppose my incident is is that in some ways it's uh, it's an attempt to kind of rescue uh, the status quo. Uh, if the financial crisis can be put down to um, the problems of choice architecture or the heuristics or the or the you know neurological um, mechanisms or whatever it might be that were going on inside the financial system, then you can act on a very very small scale uh, towards. Um, optimizing some of those decisions uh, and of course it's something individuals themselves try and self-optimize so if you're if you're a, a financial trader there are various neural supplements and, and behavioral techniques you can try and learn to try and uh, improve your decision making and so on so in some ways what's happening is that this ideal of a, of a society in which everybody's acting in a perfectly economic fashion has not been abandoned it's just that the responsibility for pursuing it is becoming shared across a, a wider range of different types of human and non-human actors in a way. You know, if, you, if, you, if your smartphone can, can now nudge you towards taking the best route home um, and you can, I mean, smartphones I think have changed a great deal because we have real-time updates on information in our pockets in a way that wasn't previously the case. In some ways it, it allows the, the, the economic utopia, the neoliberal utopia of everything becoming uh, a, 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 an optimi a question of calculation and optimization and utilitarianism, in a way it allows that to spread even further into our lives. Yeah, it's, um, I find it uh, insidious uh, myself. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> it's not very liberal, I must say. Yeah. It's liberal in the European sense. It's not very uh, libertarian. Certainly. But it's deeply appealing to a lot of people who would be the nudgers. I think the nudgees are a little less uh, – I, I like voluntary nudging. I like people signing up to be uh, reminded, say, to do something good if they choose to be uh, so reminded. Uh, having it come through the state is not my favorite thing, as you, as you mm. might expect. Uh, probably the most – common name in your book i didn't check this but because uh, the edition i had couldn't didn't allow me the electronic edition but i suspect hayek is the most common uh name that's used in your book right um now hayek's a complicated figure to i think if if, if looked at correctly a lot of people look, you know look at a caricature of him and i have no problem uh, accepting that he was a complicated figure. I don't understand his macroeconomics mostly until his Nobel Prize address, which I think is phenomenal. But his earlier macro attempts to understand uh, the role of capital, I find uh, opaque, at least to me. Uh, so I'm happy to, and I'm happy to reject some of his policy positions. He, he did not uh, climb up to Mount Sinai and accept uh, divine truth, as some people would argue about some other various economic figures, they want to embrace them. So I think he's a complicated figure, but I'd like you to think, talk about his legacy, right? Here's, mm -hmm. here's a guy who, here's a scholar and a thinker who was mainly forgotten uh, mm -hmm. by the early 70s, gets the Nobel Prize in 1974, has a little bit of a resurgence and a reinterest. And then with the financial crisis, there's, there's a great deal more interest in Hayek, both in his political economy 
uh, and in his business cycle theory, um, both. And you know, it's easy, it's easy to use him as a uh, you know a straw man, as a as a boogeyman to scare people. What do you think his influence has been overall? And and being realistic about the fact that the United States is not really such a neoliberal place in its outcomes, at least or its policy, or at least not classically liberal the way I think of it. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's his reputation, um, and some of it. And there's no point in dwelling on on, on some of the, the the negative aspects of his reputation, which you've you've alluded to. But clearly, he was someone who was celebrated by the uh, new right figures of the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher. Yep. Uh, used to slap one of his books down on a table, or, uh, according to anecdote, and say, "This is what we believe." Um, and um, the that road was, to that was, with, that was with one hand. The other hand, she was slapping the wealth of nations down on the table, right? Right. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm not sure she. <laughs> she may not have read either, but um, I mean, the, the road to serfdom, which was his 1944 book, which, in a way, was written in the in the depths of of despair. I would imagine. Um, uh, not just because of world war, but also because liberalism and, and neoliberalism would have seemed quite so far off at that at that time. Um, this was a bestseller, and it was um, something which I don't know exactly the details of how many it sold, but it it was serialized in Reader's Digest in the United States, and um, he was then repeatedly flown to the United States. I think. Um, organized by Aaron Director in the 1940s and 50s with funding, I think, from the Ford Foundation to try and get him firstly to get, go on a tour to promote the book, but also to write a, an American version of it. Correct me if, if I'm not quite right about that, but I think he, he was someone who was picked up as a celebrity by the post-war Chicago school um, and then eventually moved to Chicago, I think, in the uh, 1950s or 1960s. Um, so he had this um, association with with the Chicago School of Economics, but his thinking was quite at odds, I think, with a great deal of what the Chicago School promoted. Um, most importantly, it would seem to me, the Chicago School rest, involved a certain epistemological arrogance, I would say, a certain a certain a certain belief that it was possible to know a great deal about what was going on in the economy, uh, admittedly through very rigorous and careful uh, approaches to empirics and use of theory and so on. But it didn't, the Chicago School was, was not um, troubled by the problem of uncertainty and the problem of, um, of, of, of the impossibility of, of, of social scientific knowledge in the way that certainly the, the, the Hayek's work of the 1930s and 1940s yep. was motivated very much by a, a, a fear and a, and, a, and a distrust of what he called scientism, which was the idea that it's possible to um, model social science upon the, the methods of natural science or, or the philosophy of natural science, whereas I don't think the Chicago School had that same, they weren't troubled in quite the same way. I agree. So, um, so clearly that's where a big split takes place. I don't think that, I think, uh, and I, I don't know what your position is on this, but if you take something like the financial crisis, I don't think that a Hayekian would, would, would be happy with how the financial crisis was dealt with by uh, policy. I mean, I think, I don't know exactly what the Hayekian take on the whole course of the financial crisis or how it occurred would be, but the huge bailouts, I mean, I suppose that the, 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 the purely Austrian perspective on, on what took place was that you would just need to cleanse the system and that might take a while and yeah. it might be very painful, but then you would start, you would have a new system again. And one of the problems we have right now is that we do not have a new system. We have the same system that we had in 2007, basically, with a few less banks, ironically. Um, so um, uh, so I, I, in that respect, one thing which I, I really appeals to me about the Austrian mindset, although I think politically it doesn't appeal to me, is that it, it seems to be fueled by a spirit of modernity in a way. In, and what I mean by that is that it, it seems to be fueled by a, a, a spirit that the future, the future might be very unlike the present or unlike the past, uh, and that we need to be prepared for that, and we can be excited about that, and, and it may work out well or it might work out badly. One of the one of the problems with it is that is that that mediation between present and future is seems to be something that has to be purely channeled through um, investment, entrepreneurship, and the market. Whereas I suppose, as someone who is um, less cynical about politics, I would say, well, what about forms of political and social transformation, and not just trust 
entrepreneurs or trust uh, the likes of Uber to go around um, transforming our, uh, the, the conditions of human life, but actually think about how people can do it in a democratic and social fashion. But again, I don't have any particular truck with Hayek, and he's certainly not a, a bogeyman for me. Yeah, I think um, I think most. Um, I'll, I'll I'll pick the, na- the the leaders. I think I think Hayek and Friedman, Milton Friedman, would have both been appalled by the way the financial crisis was dealt with by the policymakers. And what I find interesting, and uh, we'll close on this, what I find interesting is how most economists across the political spectrum view it the way we coped with the political, with the financial crisis as a great success. Uh, Friedman would have said it was an utter failure. Hayek, I think, would have said it was an utter failure because of the incentives it created for the future, for the rewarding of imprudence and bad risk-taking. Certainly the discovery process has been tampered with. The feedback loops have been ruined. And uh, and yet the economists on the left, and in, in, in not too far on the left, but certainly left-leaning economists in the United States, have applauded the role that Bernanke and others have played in saving the world. And I find that, um, to be honest, I find that uh, self-serving. I find that relating to your ideas about the economist is, uh, you know, as a objective uh, judicial observer. And uh, I think that's just, uh, that's absurd. But I think that is the way that people in the United States, at least across the political spectrum, other than the harder core neoliberals in the Chicago and Austrian school. I think that's the way they viewed the aftermath. They viewed it as a great triumph of economic, uh, of economic reasoning. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, um, I, clearly that there are real questions about how much of uh, of what's happened could be described as, as neoliberal, um, and I guess that that's something that um, that debate will run. My guest today has been William Davies. His book is The Limits of Neoliberalism. Will, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.